about where we've been through uh, because we were talking about this for a second. It's just in typical Pauline fashion here. It's not that he gets to Romans 9 and just brings something on us about God's sovereignty. Not at all. He has made a really airtight argument all the way through that this is going to have to be. So this is just part of a uh, an argument that I believe he started really about from, from verse 1. So let me pray for us. Um, we'll take a quick little kind of just review ski and um and then um and then grant will introduce some things and uh carter will read the passage let's pray father as we come before you we're just so grateful um we're so grateful that you are sovereign in election otherwise uh we know that um from our uh condition inherited right from from adam um that we would have went our own way um we would have not uh, had any chance of um, being imputed with your righteousness. We would have had uh, no chance of ever seeking you. Um, and so, Lord, we come before you with, with just incredibly grateful hearts for what you've done and how you've done it, that you didn't treat us as our sins deserve, that we're not experiencing the wrath that we deserve uh, today, but instead, we're experiencing this incredible love that you demonstrated um, in the the death of your son. That while we were yet sinners, we um, that he while we were yet sinners that he would die for us. So, Lord, um, what a demonstration of love that is! I pray today that we would see um, more clearly than we've ever seen before both your love and the wrath um, that are part of your um, perfect character. And uh, we commit this time to you now and, and ask that you would um, continue to uh, shower special grace on uh, Scott and Liliana and that they would trust uh, your perfect providence, that uh, they would continue to uh, look to you, the author and perfecter of their faith, and that you would continue to shower uh, just huge joy even in the midst of this um, trial that they're walking through, and Lord, we pray that we build them. Come alongside them, um, pray, and uh, um, love them well um, for your glory. And we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, if you would go all the way back to chapter 1, um, it seems like a while since we've been there, and it has been a while since we've been there, but Paul comes right at the gate in Romans 1, with this idea, Paul, a one one, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. If you go down to verse six and seven, um, it says, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. Verse seven, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be as saints. Remember, we were talking about that a long time ago. That that is an effectual call. That that, when, it, when someone is called in this manner, it's different than when Jesus, I think, Matthew 22, 14, many are chosen, few are, are called. All right? Many are called, few are, few are chosen. Mixed up there, a little heresy. Many are called and few are chosen. So the idea here is different than a, just a general call. This is an effectual call. Okay? This is a call that when God gives us this call, 
that you will um, be regenerated. You will come to love and know Christ. And without this call, it there it's it's impossible to get there. And he convinces us through this. Here's where there's a little bit of a rub, I think, in anybody's mind that's doing the math. You would say, but wait a second. Then if God has to call me in order to truly be a believer, then how could he still blame me if I'm not? And 118, remember, all the way back, he doesn't explain it, but he does show us that we are still accountable. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, so God doesn't take the blame for us suppressing the truth. We suppress the truth on our very own. And we are truth suppressors from the time we get out of our, our mama, right? The time we come from our mother's womb. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that were made so that they are without excuse. And so both, again, there's this uh, um, kind of a rub here or a, a where we would say something hard to think through that man is responsible and God is sovereign and they aren't really explained, those two concepts, all the time, but, but we're called to just trust both. How is it that we could not come to Christ on our own. If you remember back chapter 3, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, a familiar verse in verse 23. And so I think when we just were back at that part, we really come to a good understanding because of man's depravity that we're not going to get there on our own. That's impossible. No one seeks God, right? Until God comes after us, which is where we're at now here in chapter 9, we are not going to accidentally stumble upon it, right? Chapter 5, look at verse 6, 4, just devastating words for a while, verse 6, 5, 6, for a while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been ju justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For it was while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we will be reconciled, uh, that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So weak, powerless, ungodly, and um, enemies, sinners. Those are the words that are used for us. So then, if you fast forward to chapter 8, and uh, we camped in here a little bit, look at the, the same idea, all talking here about how God has to be sovereign um, in election, as Paul's making his argument here. Verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called again, or you go back to that chapter 1, 
called, the effectual call, all those who are called according to his purpose. Anybody God calls is going to love him. Nobody that God doesn't call will love him. That's a double negative. That's probably bad English right there. So only those who are called according to his purpose will fit that, those who love God. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now this is where we know that the call is effectual. Listen to verse 30. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. A hundred percent of those he called are justified. And then what happens to that group? Those whom he justified are also glorified. So we get now, Carter, to chapter 9. And could you start us all the way in 6? And this is going to be a chunk of reading. But just so that we get the argument, go from 6, if you would, all the way to 29. And this will... Uh, is the the meat of the argument on God's sovereignty in election as far as this um, argument right here. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But you, who are you, a man, to answer back to God? But what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Gentiles only, but also from the not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully. And without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Wow. Grant, introduce this. We're going to camp on starting in verse 19, really. We got to 18 a couple weeks ago. Kind of give us an introduction here as to how we think through these things. Yeah, this passage um, I found to be 
really difficult in, in preparing for this week. Um, if you read commentators on it, uh, you'll see that if the commentators are like bowling pins and God's words like a bowling ball, this passage bowls a strike for sure. People just go everywhere on this passage, which was kind of surprising. Um, a lot don't want it to say what it says, or they try to qualify it into nothing, or um, they say it may be in the wrong way. So it was, it was difficult, but I think the difficulty comes from the subject that is being brought up. And so I think the thesis of what we'll be talking about today was brought up last time in verse 18, where it says, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And then this passage here from 19 until about 23 or 24 um, is an explanation of really what that is getting at. What does it mean that God hardens whomever he wills and he has mercy on whoever he wills? And I think the difficulty comes from clearly articulating what this is actually saying. Um, but I do think that it teaches clearly what has been historically referred to as the doctrine, doctrine of double predestination. Uh, that word... Um, has been characterized and taken to mean many other things than what it truly means. And a lot of people take it to mean that God works sin in the lives of people and then condemns them for it. And that's not what I'm getting at here. Uh, historically, it's just been called the doctrine of election, uh, election and reprobation. Election, election meaning uh, election towards salvation and reprobation meaning the passing over uh, and judgment for uh, eternal damnation. And I think the reason that it's, this passage is so important is uh, George Whitfield said this in his letter to John Wesley where they were sort of debating on this topic because of its difficulty. But George Whitfield held that without a doubt the doctrine of election and reprobation must stand or fall together. You can't have one without the other. If you have election, you have reprobation. Uh, if you have reprobation, you have to have election. There is no singular election without the alternative uh, of reprobation. And so I think the question then comes, um, what view of reprobation do you hold? And there's, a, there's just a whole back, uh, backlog of theology that goes into that, but I think the most simple way to look at it is um, either a symmetrical or asymmetrical view of the doctrine of reprobation. Probation. Does God act, that's just a fancy way of saying, does God act in the same way, does he carry it out in the same way, uh, reprobation, as he does election? Or are they carried out in a different way with the final result being uh, similar? So in the symmetrical view, it would just be uh, God elects and reprobates people in the same way. God sovereignly chose to work unbelief in some unfallen individuals and condemn them. That would not be the historical reformed view. And then the asymmetrical view would be God elects and reprobates people in different ways. God sovereignly chose to pass over non-elect sinners and withheld his regenerating grace. That would be the summary that uh, Nacelli, uh, who I found very helpful on this, gave. And one of the defenses, I think, that that's what we're talking about here, the doctrine of reprobation, would be the question that Paul brings up in verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And I think that question is proof, and, Paul, and Mark said it in his summary on this chapter would be, if we get to that question, that means we're reading Paul right. Not that it is excusable to have that question, but that the question shows that what Paul was getting at in verse 18 was as radical as, as what we may expect. He wasn't saying something else, he was saying something 
uh, very radical in the view of God's sovereignty because of the question. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? If it's not uh, such an extreme view of God's sovereignty, why would he find fault? Uh, or why would that be the, the question? Um, so what I think this is saying is the response is expected, giving proof that Paul has presented a radical view of God's sovereignty in reprobation. But while expected, it doesn't mean that it's the correct response or excusable. So we can go back to verse 14 where a similar thing is brought up. Uh, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? The expected question, but not the right response because he answers by no means. And the same thing here, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? And then that's the correct expectation, but then the correct answer would be, but who are you, old man, to answer back to God? So it's not correct to hold that view, but the fact that it's presented uh, as the logical next step shows that Paul was, in fact, getting at um, a view of sovereignty in God's election and reprobation. And to just give a little more introduction and, and defense that this is what this section is getting at and that it's not getting at anything else would be, is this just a niche thing that's brought up in just Romans 9 and this, these few verses, and therefore it could be misinterpreted or brought up you know, some other way? Um, could it be just saying something else if you tweak it slightly here and then everything else fits in? Uh, I don't think that's the case because we see that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That would be the first example. That's in the Old Testament. And then I'll give just a few other examples that show this doctrine at work in other parts of the Bible. It would be Deuteronomy 2.30. Uh, but Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, for the Lord God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand, as he has this day. Again in Proverbs 16.4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. And then John 12.39, therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. At least they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And then again in 1 Peter 2, 7 through 8. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And then the last one would be Jude 1 through 4, or 1, chapter 1, verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. So this thing that Paul is getting at here, God hardening the heart of those who are not elect, is all over the Bible. It's not a neat subject just for, for chapter 9. It's, it's taught throughout. And so the question is, what does he mean here, and what is his answer that he, that he gives? And we've seen precursors to it in chapter 5 and in chapter 1. So how does he answer it here? Um, anyway, that's, that's the introduction. Yeah, any, any no, other thoughts? I love that. And... Um, so Grant's exactly right. I don't think there's really an issue of what he's teaching. The hard part is, is that it doesn't fit into our thinking pattern. At least it doesn't. It, I, I want to ask these exact same questions. Right. And then this was really good. I thought, to as a as a as a rebuke kind of as you see in nineteen to twenty one. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault? Because that's, that's what I want to ask. For who can resist his will? And then he doesn't really answer the question maybe as thoroughly as we'd like, does he? What does he say? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? As a potter, 
no right over the clay to make out of the same lump, and that's all humanity, that same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. So the bottom line was what here, and this really, I think, will be helpful, is to say we need to believe these things when we don't understand them because this is what we know is true. God is not answerable to man in his sovereign purposes, right? That God does not have to answer to us. And um, I had never remembered um, Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker. It brought me back to Job 38. You might remember this where you almost have to, you almost have to chuckle at Job a little bit here because he went a little bit too far. Remember that where he starts that almost complaining where he says, who is this that, and, and this is God's response when you know, Job has spent chapters here kind of wondering, is this really fair, what's going on here? And God says, 38 verse 2, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I don't think you want to hear that when God says that to you. I will question you and make it, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you understand. And remember, God goes on for two chapters. And then... Job starting to get the idea. I love this. 40, chapter 40, verse uh, 1 through 8. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? I think he's asking the same thing here. Right? As a piece of clay, should I really be asking the potter, Why are you making me like this? Right? That's, that's, it's, it's ridiculous in, the, in that same way. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. The Job answered the Lord and said, I love this. This is so good. Shouldn't this be our stance too? Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. And Lord answered Job out of the world and, and said, remember round two? Dress yourself like a man. I will question you, and you'll make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be right? And so I think we have to be careful here on these to say, ooh, I don't understand this exactly. That's completely, I think, what we, we can say. But if I say, I think God's wrong in doing it this way, right? That's where we have to take back and to say, oh, wait a second, you know? What there was sometimes my mom and that never very satisfying answer when my when I would argue about something and mom would say you know I'd say mom but why are we doing this and she'd say because I said so remember not being the end of the if you maybe. had to yeah maybe <laughs> not gonna commit to that for sure plead the fifth there but yeah that's but moms can say that and that's their prerogative and God can tell us that that's just the way for the so that my um, election purposes will stand. And so we are in no position to answer back to our, uh, to our maker. MacArthur said, it is blasphemous even to question, not to mention to deny God's right to hold men accountable when they're captives of his sovereign will. I love that statement. It is blasphemous even to question, not to mention deny God's right to hold men accountable when they are captive to his sovereign will. Are we captives to his sovereign will? Absolutely. Are we still accountable? Absolutely. To explain 
With our limited understanding, we'll never perfectly be able to explain the mystery of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. To fully understand God, we would have to be equal with God. Isn't that true? Paul helps us um, by comparing God as the potter and us as pots. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, we talk about this almost every Sunday now. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So all mankind is made of the same sinful clay, and it's God's prerogative to choose to bless the some and, and not others. And uh, he shouldn't get any back talk from us, right? That's not our... That's not our prerogative. We've got to trust him. We've got to trust him that this is the way he's doing it. Now, Carter, you become an expert on verse 22. I'm excited to hear it. This is, uh, this is, this is where 22 and 23, Carter, can't they almost be even more bothersome to our intellect than the previous verses? I think so. Like, it they was, can be troubling. It was really hard to understand just approaching it for the first time. But I think um, Piper's look at the book really helped me. I thought it was a really good resource to go to. And in order to see what Paul is getting at in verse 22, I think we should we could go back to the, um, the question that he's addressing and get the context behind that. So in verse 19, it's the same one you you've, both of you have been dealing with. You'll say to me then, why does he, God, still find fault? For who can resist his will? So why is there faulting on God's part if he is sovereign over the human will? Um, and if you if you go further down and you look at verse 22, there's um, you see uh, God's attributes as wrath. Um, he wants to make known his power. So just going back to the question, why is there judgment? Or why is there wrath if no one can resist God's will? So the real question is, I think from the beginning, is if God, in the context of all of chapter 9, if God passed over Israel, all of ethnic Israel, and if God hardened Pharaoh, and if he hated Esau, then why does he still find fault? Why is there still fault found by God? And I think that's what Paul is ultimately answering here in verse 22. Now, if you look at the beginning of verse 22, there's a short phrase at the beginning. And it says, what if God? Now, in the Greek translation, it's not what if. It's the Greek translation just has it as if. So it would basically read, if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power. And if you go further down and you just get on the, the edge of verse 24, you'll notice that the sentence breaks off. So it would read the whole verse. If God, desiring to show his wrath, and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. There's two possibilities that um, I think Piper um, proposes could end the sentence or complete it. And there's a negative aspect to it and there's a positive aspect to it. So if we start the verse, if God has done all these things, shown his wrath, made known his power, then the first negative, then no legitimate objection can be raised or no legitimate objection can be established. 
And if we were to go to the positive aspect, if God did all these things, endured with patience vessels of wrath, if he displayed his power, then God on the positive end is righteous. So no legitimate objection can be raised, and God is righteous. Those are the two um, sort of endings to that sentence. And I, I just bring that up so we can get a bigger picture of Paul's answer to the original question. Now, the answer to the original question, um, which is, why does, why does God still find fault? Um, no one can resist him anyway. The first is, the original, I mean, the answer to the original question is first to say that God has an aim. If you look at the beginning of verse 22, after if God, it says that God, if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power. So we know that God desires. Um, God is desiring something. He has an aim. The aim is expressed in his desiring. That's the first part of a three-part answer to the original question of why does he still find fault? Who can resist him? The second part of the answer is the how. So God desires to show his wrath. How does he, how does he show his wrath? How does he make known his power? Um, and that's answered in the second portion of verse 22. Has, he has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So that's the second part of the three-part answer. And the last part um, of God's aim, the last part of the answer is the purpose. So God desires to make, no, to make known his power, to show his wrath. Why or how does he do that? He endures with much patience vessels of wrath. Why does he do all this? What's the point? He does it in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. So this last reason, the purpose, is the ultimate justification of God's ways with men over whom he, uh, he exercises complete sovereign control. So if we kind of zoom in on the first on the first portion of 22, or just on the context of verse 22, I think we could um, come away with a, clear con- with a clear context that he draws from Pharaoh. I mean, this goes back to verse 17, where he says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. If we jump back to Exodus 10, we notice that Moses confronts Pharaoh and says, let my people go on behalf of God. What We all know what happens. Pharaoh hardens his heart. His heart is hardened, and um, he hardens his own heart at the same time. But each plague that comes upon him, he, he pleads for the Lord to take it away. And the Lord relents every time of the plague. And Pharaoh shows this false sense of repentance every time. And what happens every time? His heart becomes more calcified to the point where in the very end, the Lord ends up taking his son away from him, killing his son. And he lets the people go. He said, and Pharaoh basically just says, get out of my sight to Israel and Moses. And his heart is just cemented to the point to where he goes after the Israelites to his own demise. But that is to say, the whole point of that was to display God's power, to put on to put on display the full measure of his glory, of his wrath, to make known his power. Um, so when we see in verse, at the latter part of verse 22, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, he, the vessels of wrath that he endures with patience, vessels of wrath sounds very familiar, and that's because it 
directly corresponds to the vessel in verse 21 for dishonorable use. Yeah. Now, what does this imply? This implies that the vessels of wrath are truly suited for wrath. So the potter in verse 21 isn't stupid or anything. He wisely designs a vessel for dishonorable use. And this means there is, no matter how, I mean, understand that this is, I, I don't, I haven't come to the foothills of truly understanding the tension between responsibility and um, God's sovereignty. But this means that there is real fault in the vessels, and there's real guilt, there's real blame. And at the same time, there's a real, a real rejection of God and a real hatred of God. And in the end, God will ultimately give them what they want, these vessels of wrath. They'll give them what they want, but what they want is not a holy God or just God. They abhor what is good, and they love what is evil. But the Bible, like you, like you said, the Bible doesn't really go any deeper into why um, in referring to the tension between responsibility and sovereignty. But the vessels of wrath, when we talk about this in verse 22, this implies something else. Not only that the vessels are truly suited for wrath, but God is truly sovereign over the design of the vessel. So... God's sovereignty is clearly established there as well as their responsibility. You can't divorce that. You can't um, divorce the two. They're there, but we may not completely understand it. But the last thing that we can imply from um, God enduring face, uh, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction is that not only do the vessels have real blame, real guilt, um, real fault in the matter, but God has real patience in enduring them and in bearing with them. So there's really, there, there really is true, um, true guilt, true fault on the, on, the, um, on the part of the vessels. God is truly sovereign in the matter completely. And there's also real patience on God's part, like the Lord bearing with Pharaoh the whole time in order to escalate that manifested power through uh, Pharaoh's example. So that's basically the how of the design that God uses to make known his power. I'm trying to wrap up quick. I know I'm taking off. I'm talking too much. But mm. now the ultimate purpose, um, we have the ultimate purpose in verse 23. So God desires to show his wrath, to make known his power. We just talked about the why he endures. Um, we just talked about how. So how he desires to show his wrath and make known his power. He endures with much patience vessels of wrath. So now the why. What's the point of it all? Verse 23. The ultimate purpose is not wrath in and of itself. The ultimate purpose is not judgment, nor is it faulting. It's not guilt. It's not blame. The ultimate purpose is in verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now, we just got done talking about vessels of wrath. So when we talk about vessels of mercy, there's some similarities in how we describe it. Vessels of mercy, on the other hand, are perfectly suited for mercy, not wrath. They're perfectly suited for grace. They're perfectly fit 
to receive mercy. Um, they're perfectly suited to receive salvation, to behold His patience, His character, and His glory. And they're perfectly suited by the potter to contain mercy through faith and repentance. And they are able to, to contain mercy through faith and repentance with humility. But we can't forget that um, both vessels are from the same lump. There's, there's the same hatred of God. There's, a still, there's still a deadness to God and unable to respond to God. But it's through God's infinite power, His wisdom, His grace, His mercy that He reveals and that He allows these vessels of mercy to receive. So God's mercy and character are exponentially amplified among His own. This was the purpose the whole time, um, so that God would make known His glory to His people. And that's why it matters that God ordains sin. That's why it matters that God ordains evil. It is completely necessary for God to ordain evil and sin so that He may punish it. It has to happen. It's completely necessary. Either Otherwise, we wouldn't know what mercy is. We couldn't, we couldn't appreciate God for who He truly is. He would like provide an imperfect picture, and, the, and then from that, we wouldn't have a complete joy in Him. So I, I wanted to read a little bit of Jonathan Edwards' The Decrees, which he makes, he's really clear about this, but I know we're running out of time and I don't want to take up the rest of the time, which I probably already have, but anyway. Um, he just makes the point so clearly that without a complete picture of who God is, our joy can't be complete in God. So God has ordained all these things to come to pass so that we would behold the fullness of His glory. This was, this was completely necessary for us to see who God truly is. And I think John Piper put it best, um, and he helped me so much, and basically all of this is from him, that he said it best, I think, when he said, we would not be loved fully by God if we did not know God fully. Mm-hmm. And I think that... Um, helped me tremendously in understanding this part of Romans 9. Yeah, it's good stuff, Grant. So mercy is really merciful in the backdrop of God's wrath right. from verse 23. Is when it, and that that's hard to think through, but it sure makes sense. Uh, Grant? Yeah, that, I mean, we could just pack up and go home. I, but a couple of extra things would be, um, it's important to remember that God is not the author of sin. He doesn't. Um, make the sin happen Um, he is sovereign over all things but he makes out of the same lump vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath that's fallen humanity as Mark said in his video Um, that is not God authoring sin in an innocent human being that is fallen humanity one for one for wrath one for mercy and and what Carter was saying is is exactly right that one of the reasons seems to be hinging that God chooses to show his attributes and more fullness through this and why would God delay his judgment on the vessels of wrath? It would be that God demonstrated his patience by not destroying Pharaoh immediately, even though Pharaoh resisted God's command. By delaying his judgment on Pharaoh, God magnified his name and exhibited more forcefully the greatness of his salvation and the terror of his judgment. And then the emphasis on his magnifying his name and perfections, the emphasis is on magnifying his name and perfections, and this also... Um, more emphasizes his glory by contrast for us who are the vessels of glory. And I think the way Nassali put it was 
imperfect metaphor, they always are, or analogy, whatever it is, they're always imperfect, but basically if I wanted to show you a diamond, I wouldn't show it to you underneath a bright uh, backdrop or a white sheet of paper. They always put it on a black velvet thing so you can more clearly see the beauty of the diamond contrasted to the blackness of the backdrop. And I think that's what's on display here is God is magnifying his name and he is showing uh, his mercy more clearly uh, on the backdrop of reprobation for the elect. That's good. So if you did, did come from another, just a slightly different angle, Stodd had uh, three reasons that um, how is it from that original question then, you will still say to me, why does he still find fault? And uh, Stott says, uh, number one, God has the same right as the potter over the clay. Number two, why is it that it's compatible to sh God to show mercy to some and harden others is that he reveals himself as he is. From verse 22 and 23, God is revealing himself as he is. Mark said it. You're talking about the diamond. Uh, Mark talks about all of those facets of a diamond is what uh, God shows in his wrath, his mercy, his love. All of those are infinitely um, on display in the how God does things. And then um, the third way God foretells these things in Scripture, and that's 24 through 26 and 27 and 29. Um, even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, and then two um, passages from Hosea. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And then the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. So the Gentiles, and, uh, and if that's who you are today, then we can be sure thankful there, 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And, the Lord and as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like um, Gomorrah. So we can just see that God determines himself um, to be seen as himself. And I would just say in closing, uh, I saw uh, Scott and Loiana last Sunday, and after I left, I was deeply moved um, and, and I think you'll understand what I'm trying to say here is that I left with this deeper, more uh, vivid sense than ever that our God in heaven is exactly who he says he is. He is exactly who he says he is. And our God in heaven will do exactly what he says he'll do. And when he says his grace is sufficient to see that on Scott and Liliana, was uh, an amazing thing. Um, it was, it shouldn't have been a surprise because that's who God says he is in Scripture. So all of these things, take that back to all of what we learned in Romans so far. God is faithful. He is um, all-loving, all-knowing, and all-powerful. We can trust him. And to watch the way 
Liliana has endured hardship, suffering like none of the rest of us even begin to know with great joy. And I uh, was telling her, I was just saying, Liliana, just so thankful that you've been such a sound ambassador uh, for the for the gospel. And she, you can see her head just shake like this a little bit. Like she didn't feel like it, maybe. But I just feel like she she has been in Scott, too, in such a neat, neat way. And so we want to continue to pray for them. But as I uh, studied this, um, they kept coming to mind of just God's faithfulness to um, to take his children through, through the midst of trials. Carter, would you pray for us? Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you have given us so many beautiful promises with which we can turn to, to ignite our trust. Lord, thank you for your spirit who you've given to us. Help us to understand better your word. Help us to understand you more fully. Help us to understand and to grow in our knowledge of you and our love for you. Pray you would be with the McAndrews, that you would give faith, courage, and trust to Liliana. I pray that you would provide her with strength, and also with Mr. Scott and with Michael, that you would give them wisdom, that you would comfort them and surround them even now. I pray now that um, <clears throat> as we go and we hear your word, that it would lay deeply upon us, that you would speak to us, and that you would give us understanding, that you would give us a greater view of who you are. In Christ's name, amen. amen.